Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Interview, where we meet the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, editor of Prospect magazine. This week we're going to talk to Andrew Adonis, the former Labour minister, about the man he calls Labour's Churchill. The British statesman Ernest Bevan was one of the most powerful leaders of the early 20th century, went on to be Minister of Labour in the wartime coalition government and then ended his career as Foreign Secretary after the war. Adonis writes about the life of this towering statesman, his rise from 11-year-old orphan farm labourer to become a world-shaping minister in a new book, Ernest Bevin, Labour's Churchill. So first of all, Andrew Adonis, Ernest Bevan is someone with a background that we might is pretty unusual in politics today, isn't he? Just tell us where he came from. There were two big things to know about Ernie Bevan's background. The first is it's it's literally uh, it's a true rags story. Son of a single mum uh, who died when he was eight, farm labourer, uh, left school at eleven, barely with the three R's gets into a fight with the local farmer when he's a, a boy uh, labourer and literally walks out to Bristol, which is the, the nearest city that's somewhere away, with just the clothes on his back and the addresses of his two elder brothers, one of whom works in a butcher shop and, and the other in a restaurant. I mean, you can't get a more graphic uh, uh, story of poverty through to power than Ernie Bevin. But the second thing, which is, as it were, man meets situation, is that Ernie is becoming a serious trade union organiser, because once he gets into Bristol, he gets into the unions, which is the making of him. He's becoming a serious trade union organiser at a time when the trade unions are moving right into centre stage. This is during and after the First World War. And though the unions, of course, have been around for the previous 50 years, they became legitimate and powerful during and after the First World War, partly because the government had to negotiate with them in the war because it had to get production up and it couldn't afford to have ceaseless strikes. But also, of course, because in 1918, Britain becomes a democracy, organised labour becomes a very serious political factor. We've just had the Russian Revolution, where most people in Britain, including you know, liberal and conservative leaders, are and the king, are petrified that what's happening in Russia could follow in Britain quite quickly. And therefore, they understand that they've got to treat these big union leaders in a wholly different way than in the past. And Ernie Bevin plays into that and he, he founds the Transport and General Workers Union 
uh, as, and turns himself into a big union leader at just the point where people are expecting big union leaders to become big national players. And how can I put it, Ernie doesn't disappoint their expectations. So he's got one big thing that comes out of these early years is he's just a natural kind of fixer, a natural operator, isn't he? Because he, he rocks up on a cart um, K-side somewhere in Bristol and like, it just sort of happens that he becomes the voice of the, the, the men at the docks, doesn't it? Some, or the, the men on the carts. Well, it doesn't happen spontaneously. Uh, Ernie Bevan is an absolutely brilliant organiser. Uh, Francis Williams, who was um, a press spokesman to Clem Attlee after the Second World War and a, and a great Labour historian, Francis Williams, in a really intriguing uh, part of his biography of Ernie Bevan, that's the first one that appears after Ernie's death, says that Ernie Bevan is the English figure most like Stalin in the years after 1918. He is a supreme organiser. He is a hugely uh, dominant physical presence. He can move big working class audiences. Uh, he's an absolute workaholic uh, and he's paranoid. I mean, you know, whenever Ernie sees an opponent, his instinctive reaction is to want to eviscerate them. The difference between them, which is the fundamental difference, is that ultimately Ernie was a Democrat. He ultimately came out of the British nonconformist tradition. He'd gone to a Wesleyan Sunday school from the age of three. He sang all these great Christian hymns and all of that. Ultimately, he believed in the value of human beings, though he thought he should be top dog. <laughs> he wasn't like Stalin a hater of a large part of the human race coming out of a culture that was authoritarian and didn't regard as legitimate your opponents. And so ultimately, Ernie Bevin was a creator of a new democratic Britain, not the destroyer of a new democratic Russia, which of course is what uh, Stalin was. And during those years, I mean, he came, as you say, from obscurity by um, his 30s is in charge of this big new union and like stays there for a long time. The interwar period is a very eventful one, isn't it? We've got the general strike. We've got like at the end of the First World War, the Russian Revolution. Um, and then we've got, uh, you know, the Great Depression and, and the political reaction to that. In that whole kind of run of events through the 20s and 30s, do you think we see the mature Bevin at work? Do we see his philosophy or is he, is he still kind of a young redder Bevin than he became later? Well it's definitely work in progress in that uh, I don't think the older Bevin would have gone along with the general strike. Uh, he, he, his view was very clear that, that you should only take on battles that you can win and that it was a full frontal assault on uh, parliamentary institutions was never going to win in modern Britain because uh, the prestige of parliament was too high and in any case what is the democratic principle that you can set against Parliament and parliamentary elections. He didn't go into it willingly. He, he was, he'd only just founded the Transport and General Workers Union and indeed he'd only just gone on the TUC General Council before the uh, 1926 general strike. And I think the best way of putting it is that he was last in and first out. Yeah. But nonetheless, I don't think that the, the older and more mature Ernie Bevin would have gone in at all. I think he would have persuaded the TUC by just massive force of argument and personality not to have gone in, and I think he would have done a deal with Baldwin. Baldwin, interestingly, wanted to do a deal. Baldwin was not scrapping for a fight at all. He gives a big subsidy for the coal industry the year before the general strike, and I think he might have been persuaded uh, to do some kind of a deal that, that phased closures over a longer period and kept wages up and so on. But unfortunately, the, the 
the leadership of the miners' union was in the hands of the communists in the 1920s, a guy called A.J. Cook, who is a kind of early version of Arthur Scargill. I mean, just as, uh, as, um, as you know, these figures recur, just as George Lansbury, who's the leader of the Labour Party, the pacifist leader of the Labour Party of the 1930s, who Ernie Bevan replaces, is an uncanny precursor to Jeremy Corbyn. So Arthur Scargill, I hadn't realised until writing about Ernie Bevan and getting into it, the situation in the miners' union in the 20s and 30s is very similar to the 1980s. Communist leadership, uh, an absolute determination to try and bring down the government. Uh, in an industry, of course, which was in a really, really terrible state. So you can see how these ideas grew and produced leaders like Scargill and A.J. Cook. But the point is, in the mid-20s, A.J. Cook was ruling the roost, so far as the TUC was concerned. Once Ernie Bevan had got control of it, there was no question of more general strikes or attempts to bring down the British state. And it's that that meant that Ernie Bevan could go to... Uh, Churchill's right hand in 1940 because he was seen as a pillar of the state not somebody trying to pull it down. And so he's already very much by the late 20s a kind of pragmatist and a, and a fixer and not some kind of doctrinaire zealot but when it comes to the big decision that the Labour movement has to make in 1931 he's got no time for the splitters of the national government has he? Well, he, he, he never has a rapport with Ramsay MacDonald. He regards MacDonald as a social fraud. You know, all this, uh, you know, MacDonald's famous remark when he um, does his deal with Baldwin and forms a national government in 1931, tomorrow every duchess in London will want to kiss me. Yeah. That, I, that kind of way of behaving, Ernie Bevin absolutely loathes. He regards it as class betrayal. Ernie Bevan was working class at the beginning, he's working class when he becomes a leader, he never accepts an honour, he never becomes personally rich or wealthy. I think all of that is admirable, by the way, and it's what makes him so powerful, a moral leader as well as, as a political leader. But the other reason why Bevan uh, mobilises against Baldwin and Macdonald in 31 is because by then he's formed a very strong alliance with Keynes, and he understands it's not just that mass unemployment is bad, but it's also unnecessary. What he and Keynes do together, Ernie as, they, as the man of action, Keynes as the man of ideas, is they put together a whole new philosophy in the late 20s and early 30s. Lloyd George is in there too, of course, is also a man of action, which argues convincingly, and I mean, in terms of looking at this historically, uh, path-breakingly, because this becomes the policy of the state by the 1940s, that in a time of massive, private sector recession and cuts, the job of the state is to intervene economically and create big investments and public works which prevent mass unemployment. And that wasn't a, a, a communist, off-the-wall, leftist idea. It was plain, pragmatic, liberal common sense. It's what FDR was doing in the United States. It's what Britain comes to do from the mid-1940s with the employment white paper. It is Keynesianism, as we now understand it. And it was that set of ideas meeting action, which is what animates Bevin uh, in taking this stand against Baldwin and MacDonald with the proposed austerity cuts of 1931, which splits the second Labour government. I mean, one thing I really learned from your book and I hadn't picked up at all before was this business about Bevin as like, you know, the, the dream Keynesian politician. And just as Keynes' famous line is about 
you know, if people are sitting around doing nothing, it's better to pay them to dig holes in the ground and fill them back in again. You report that in Bristol back in the day, Ernie Bevin was doing that before Keynes. Yeah, the, the, the Bevin Lake is, uh, is still there. You know, literally, and that wasn't uh, filling a hole in the ground and doing nothing. That was creating a big public park. Bevin, and that was what Bevin was doing, by the way, uh, before the First World War. Yeah. So, so he, he was a Keynesian long before Keynes. And I think he was very brilliantly insightful. He understood that the resources of a country need to be properly marshaled and organised. And if the private sector can't do it, then the community at large should do it. And that's basically what Keynes is all about. So he was a, a Keynesian with Keynes and in some ways before Keynes. And then, as you say, the war comes and in a sense, his whole life up until 1940, where this man who's not in Parliament is quickly brought into Parliament and made the Minister of Labour, had been a preparation for that job. Well, his preparation for being Minister of Labour was that he was the organiser of Labour. And what Churchill wanted in 1940 was somebody who could organise the unions, the working class and the productive effort of the country while he did all the military strategy. And so the war essentially, to a degree I hadn't realised, because though Clemente is a hugely important figure as leader of the Labour Party in bringing Chamberlain down and putting Churchill in, and the bevin Atley relationship is vitally important to the power of both of them. In terms of the actual management of the war, the war was actually managed by Churchill and Bevin. Churchill managing uh, the military front, Bevin managing the home front in terms of getting the productive capacity of the country going. It's very, very striking that in the Second World War, not only is Britain's productivity much higher even than uh, the dictatorships of Germany and Italy, but there are very few strikes. There's very little industrial disruption and the levels of uh, support for the state are sky high, including really dramatic moves which Bevin makes, like the industrial conscri conscription of women, which at the beginning even Churchill opposes because he thinks it's a step too far socially. Now, why was Bevin able to get away with all of that? Because he called the working class, my people. He had a really strong sense of what he could and couldn't sell to them. And he traveled around the country doing it. And the deal was that they would work hard, they would give up the strike weapon in return for pay deals and deals on terms and conditions that were transformational in terms of the condition of the working class. And it was Churchill that sold uh, 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 all of that to the Tories because he said Bevin won't accept any less. It was an extraordinary partnership between Churchill and Bevin, which is part of the reason why uh, only by the end of the process of writing did I come to subtitle the book Labour's Churchill, because it came mm. clear to me that there was, they were in, some, in many respects two sides of the same coin. And it's, you get this sense of a chap going round kind of all sorts of places, visiting things and doing, getting involved in the real nuts and bolts of, I don't know, the catering... Uh, wages council and like just just the idea that like everything needs to be brokered and Ernie and his ministry are going to broker it all over the place. Yeah and also a big cultural thing too which I had no idea about. Uh, Ernie Bevan is the arbiter of popular culture during the Second World War. He sets up ENSERT which is the popular entertainment business. Churchill delegates all of that to him. He does deals with uh, Basil Dean, the big theatre impresario, the guy who ran all the music halls, and he and Flo, his wife, have been going to music halls for the previous 30 years. 
uh, he sets up news channels, he gets the BBC to do workers' um, uh, programmes, he gets employers to start broadcasting them over the tannoys. In all these canteens, he's been setting up so that uh, the workers have places where they can get decent meals, which is a really big Bevinist theme during the war. I mean, it's an amazing act of will on the part of Bevin. And the supreme uh, testament to his power is when at the end of the war, there's a massive crisis in, wait for it, the coal industry yet again. And it's Ernie Bevin who persuades the conscripts to go down the mines, the Bevin boys, doing what is probably the worst a most uh, horrendous job that uh, anyone has to do in the mines. Can you imagine all these middle-class boys going hundreds of feet underground? I mean, they'd much rather have, have gone to, you know, D-Day and, uh, and the Western Front than that. And he manages to sell it in a way I don't think anyone else could have done. And I think if this had been the First War, First World War, and not only Bevin, there would have been huge strikes and massive unrest in, in, in the face of the problems in the coal industry at the end of the Second World War. I mean, it's fascinating a line you've got from him, you know, like, you know, just as Gladstone um, was Chancellor from 18, whatever it was, 60 to 1910 or something, like I'm going to be Minister of Labour from 1940 to 1990. And the last of those wages councils was disbanded in 1993 under Thatcher Major. So in some senses, he wasn't far off. Um, well, the, the big break, I think, was 1979. I, I, I say after that, he said, I, I'll be Minister of Labour from, from 1940 to 1990. Actually, Thatcher evicts him in 1979. That's okay. what happens. And that in, is the great break point in terms of the relations between trade unions and the state. It, as it were, the Ernie Bevin settlement with Churchill. You know, in 1945, Churchill is making big speeches about his debt to the trade unions. This is a guy who'd been organising Baldwin's Tory government against the unions in the general strike only 14 years pre before the war. So that was a huge new settlement by the British state in the 1940s, and it, it dissolves really in 79 when Thatcher comes to power. 
but even in the war for the people who became his critics afterwards you're starting to see something uh of maybe a rightward drift and i wanted to like take your mind on that on a couple of points so one is that he makes this very dramatic stand against labor mps about half the labor mps were absolutely chomping at the bit to get the beverage report through earlier why does he see it so important uh to sort of say let's douse things down on the kind of let's build a welfare state front well he doesn't uh, delay in, in developing welfare state after 1945 there'd been a coalition agreement with the tories that controversial issues would be postponed now in typical ernie bevin fashion issues he particularly wanted addressed weren't postponed and some of those were extremely progressive so ernie was strongly in favor of raising the school leaving age to 16. he had like many autodidacts he had this passionate belief in the power of education and he persuades uh, a persuasion Churchill to go with the R.A. Butler Education Act, the key provision of which, so far as Ernie Bevin is concerned, is raising the school leaving age to 16, which, with deep, deep irony, is one of the things that the post-war Labour government doesn't do. The 1945 Labour government, though it's very good on welfare, is very bad on education. And in the austerity of the late 1940s, they cancelled the raising of the school leaving age to 16. And that doesn't take place, ironically, until Heath's Tory government in the 1970s. So the, the, the social politics of the 1940s aren't straightforward. Uh, Ernie wasn't against the Beveridge Report, but they, but they couldn't do a deal with the Tories during the war on it. And also there was a classic Ernie Bevin personal thing, which is that he personally had fallen out with William Beveridge, because Beveridge had been one of his officials in the Labour Department. Who, he, who treated Ernie condescendingly. And there was nothing which was worse in the, in the Bevin book than people who were condescending to. So he got him kicked out of the Labour Department. He thought he was doing this report just about coordination of social services, and it ends up as a national bestseller. So uh, Ernie isn't best pleased about that, though actually, of course, in 1945, one of the first things that the Labour government does is to implement the Beveridge report. Yeah, and, and, and okay, so he, he doesn't, as it were, sell out on that. But he is interested, isn't he, in keeping the national government, or whatever the coalition's called, uh, the coalition going into peacetime, which is curious, given that, um, you know, he's quite a partisan figure, you'd have thought, and he certainly was in 1931. Do you think the war changes him and makes him more of a national figure and less of a Labour figure? Well, I, I think that's definitely true, actually. He definitely does become a big national figure, a kind of national treasure, as we'd now say, by 1945. That's definitely true. It's also the case that both he and Attlee, because Attlee was in favour of continuing the coalition too in 1945, both he and Attlee think it's just a foregone conclusion that Churchill will win the election. <laughs> but, the, but the difference, and there's a crucial difference with 1931, Neither of them has any intention of splitting the Labour Party and the deal with Churchill will be that this post-war national government does the welfare states. But in fact, in practice, they can't sell this to the Labour National Executive Committee or to Labour MPs. You've got Nye Bevin and figures on the left who are deeply suspicious that this will end up as a sellout, even if it doesn't start off that way. Actually, as it happens, I think they're probably right about that. I think a continuation of the coalition in 1945 would probably, even if it didn't begin by splitting the Labour Party, would have split it over time. probably within a year or two. Can you really see Nye Bevan supporting a Churchill-led coalition government in peacetime? I mean, it, it, it wasn't going to happen. So I think the right decision was taken. And both Bevin and Attlee are very clear 
that if Labour can't continue the coalition in a united fashion in 1945, then they should go into opposition in a united fashion, which is fundamentally different from the position that Ramsay MacDonald takes in 1931. And it's that that leads to Labour fighting the 1945 election as a united party under Attlee and Bevin, who are the two biggest figures, and then went to everyone's astonishment, Labour actually wins the election. Of course, it's a united Labour Party that then goes into government. Yeah. I mean, it could have gone a bit Nick Clegg if, if, they, if they'd gone in with Churchill after a bit. It could have gone very Nick Clegg. That's a very good way of putting it. <laughs> uh, but the, the big, big difference is that what Attlee and Bevin never give up is their Labourism. They never stop being fundamentally Labour politicians who are there for a transformational deal for the working class and a welfare state. They are also imperialists, which is part of the reason why this book is subtitled Labour's Churchill again. Both Atney and Bevin are imperialists. They're creatures of the Victorian age and they share a lot of those assumptions. Uh, so on the foreign and defence fronts, there isn't actually, to be blunt, that much to separate them from Churchill. But there's a big division on welfare policy and on the role of the state in society. And neither Bevin nor Attlee give up on their Labour credentials in that respect. And that's what fundamentally makes this Labour government socially transformational in 1945. And of course, we get this extraordinary flip, which may or may not have been down to the King's preference, where Ernest Bevin becomes the foreign secretary rather than as he'd assumed, and many others had the chancellor, which you describe in, in, in detail. I mean, your great emphasis there is that he um, stands firm against the evil of Stalin, which a uh, few people would quibble with. But I mean, he is quite, and you've got a whole chapter on his flaws, quite a reactionary figure, and more reactionary, I'd say, than Attlee, in the sense that, you know, Attlee's very clear, he wants to get out of India, the biggest colony by a mile. Bevin doesn't like that, does he? Well, Bevin is an imperialist, and he's more of an imperialist than Attlee. Attlee doesn't want to dismantle the empire, but he can see the writing on the wall, and in particular, when faced with big popular nationalist movements, Attlee rightly says that Labour shouldn't be fighting them. And that's why he takes the decision to get out of India and set a date, because the alternative would have been serious repression in India, and he isn't prepared to go there. Whereas Ernie Bevin's actually prepared to send troops into India, amazingly. I mean, he, he, he was prepared to go the whole Churchill way after 1945. However, I see these as two sides of the same coin in the curious way, that it's the Bevin who's the imperialist, who also has the strength of purpose and will to stand up to Stalin. And the single biggest challenge that Britain and democracy face in 1945 is Stalinism in Europe. And it's the combination of Bevin with all of the strength of his Churchillian resolve not to see Stalin rampage over Western Europe. It is that, plus an Attlee circumspection when it comes to dealing with the empire, that makes that 1945 government just about work. Now, what's the actual record of that government? It is total resolution in standing up to Soviet imperialism, total resolution, including NATO and the setting up of the Atlantic Alliance, without which it would have been possible to resist Stalin. And that is Bevin's work. And it's why I argue in the book that modern Labour people should be celebrating NATO as much as the NHS. They are the twin triumphs of the 1945 government. But it's also the case that Attlee is the first person seriously to call time on the empire. And he was right about that. And Bevin was definitely wrong. But let's just, because um, like outside a few people on the fringes, 
very few people would say that Bevin was wrong about Stalin to see him as a, as a, as a, as a bad dictator. And it's quite heartening stories in there about where he actually stands up to him at, um, uh, at the summits, you know. It's, um, but like, it wouldn't just be people on the far left of Labour, it'd be people in the middle of the party who would have taken, well, like Dalton, you know, who, who, who could have very easily been the foreign secretary, who would have taken quite a different line um, and who might not have been chomping at the bit to get the Americans to set up NATO and the things you're saying were a big um, success. Isn't it just worth pausing to consider whether if the West had played that early phase of the Cold War a little more gently, that Soviets wouldn't have become quite so ossified as they did. After all, Stalin didn't last much longer and Stalin was denounced at home. Did we really need the whole 45-year Cold War? Well, that is uh, uh, the big central debate in the chapter about Stalin in my book. And uh, I don't come at this as personally as a hawk at all. You know, I'm, uh, I'm not by and large in favour of... Uh, of international wars, particularly those which have got an imperialist edge. But looking at the record of what happened in Central and Eastern Europe between 1945 and 1948, it is very clear to me that Stalin, whose mentality is an imperialist mentality and to get a foothold in as much of Western Europe as he could have done, that if uh, Bevin hadn't been there standing up to him, then what I'm absolutely sure would have happened is that West Germany would have become an adjunct to East Germany. Germany would have started off as a neutral, non-aligned state, uh, like Poland and Czechoslovakia, which is the status that they're granted in the uh, Yalta and Potsdam conferences, but would have ended up with Soviet coups. That is exactly what happens in Czechoslovakia and Poland, and a united, neutral Germany, which is what Stalin and the United States would have negotiated, but for Bevin, I am fairly sure would have ended up as a Soviet satellite. And if you just need to do the thought experiment, if the whole of Germany had become a Soviet satellite, as well as, as um, the neighboring states of Poland, Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, Hungary, and so on, then post-war history would have been very, very different. And we wouldn't have had this concept of the West, a bulwark of which is West Germany, that wouldn't have been there after 1945. And I think Europe would have been inherently more unstable. We wouldn't have had the Atlantic Alliance because the United States would have withdrawn because that would have been part of the process. And I think it's perfectly possible we would have ended up in another war with the Soviets. And the point about Stalin's death, of course, is it doesn't happen until 1953. So there could easily have been another war with Stalin in the late 1940s or early 1950s uh, before he goes. Uh, and that looks to me to be very, very possible if well, there had been an aggressive get... Soviet takeover of Western, Western Europe after 1945. Do get the war in Korea. Exactly. There is a real war. And if that war had been won in, in, in Germany, then you can imagine how... Uh, how seriously destabilizing this would have been. So, so my, my view on reviewing all the evidence is uh, that Bevin was right about Stalin in the way that Churchill was right about Hitler in the 1930s. What they both understood is that you weren't dealing with a variant of leftism here, just as with Hitler, you weren't dealing with a variant of rightism. You were dealing with a fundamentally totalitarian leader who was basically out to colonise all around him. And the only way of dealing with that was to call time on it, which is what Bevin does in, in relation to Stalin.
Let's just close by like making a few comparisons with the person you're writing your next book about, which is Tony Blair. Like some of the things you um, like a lot about Ernest Bevan are quite different from Tony Blair, aren't they? Who you also like, you know, I mean, Tony Blair, we've all been watching this programme about the Murdochs, you know, ends up like going on holiday with the Murdochs, becoming a godfather to one of their children. Um, doesn't root things notoriously at all in Labour tradition, which whatever the Bevan policy is, um, like Bevin was always very keen on doing and left a slightly hollowed out Labour Party that then went the way it did. Do you wish that Tony Blair had spent a bit more time reading up on Ernest Bevin before? Um, well, actually, the, the, the first podcast I did on this book was with Tony Blair, for whom Ernie Bevin is a great hero. My, my verdict on this is that one of the big problems that Tony Blair had, and indeed all modern Labour leaders have had, is that they haven't had an Ernie Bevin. The Blair relationship is much more akin to um, Attlee, just as, uh, as was Howard Wilson. But neither of the two great Labour leaders of the last 30 years, which is, is Wilson and Attlee, so Wilson and, and Blair, both of whom had Attlee, many Attlee characteristics about them, middle class, strong appeal to Middle England, a cross-class appeal, all of that, even though they've personally been somewhat different characters. Neither, none, none of those two, neither Wilson uh, nor Blair had their Ernie Bevin. Uh, they both, in a curious way, tried to find them. Uh, I mean, how can I say this diplomatically? Um, Tony had John Prescott and Howard Wilson had Frank Cousins. But let's be blunt about it, neither Cousins nor Prescott were Ernie Bevin. And the failure of the modern labour movement, which I don't think was Wilson or Blair's fault, it's the failure of the modern trade union movement to produce leaders of the strength and pragmatism of Ernie Bevin, which I think is a has been a fundamental problem for the left and for social politics in Britain in the last half century. And insofar as I have a, a big message from the last chapter of my book, it is how can we get back to the trade unions being a pillar of the state? Because what Ernie Bevin does, by force of personality, by pragmatism and by organisation, is to make the trade union movement of the 1940s into an equal pillar of the state, along with the aristocracy, the great institutions and so on. It never happens again afterwards. And I think that's been a fundamental problem for the Labour Party on the left. Andrew Adonis, thank you very much. Uh, that's all for us this time on the Prospect interview. If you enjoyed our podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review, which really does help. Goodbye, stay safe, and we'll see you next week.